0: can be such a bore when faced with yet another whore to think of a new method to dispatch her so when I'm feeling grand I change my modus operandi and And in in that that way no one one will ever catch ya when you've covered all the angles from poisoning to strangles and you haven't yet been dragged into the dock It's always much more thrilling To be inventive with your killing But if they catch you, you could get a nasty Instead of trying to restrict him Take a trophy from your victim A clipping of their pubic hairs is good And if you want to cause a ripple Make a belt from ladies' nipples And wear it as you dance round in the woods is tripping, at the thought of yet more ripping. And your hands, they might be slipping, from the neck that they are gripping. And the acid, it is dripping, from the body you are dipping. And your trusty spade is slipping, all the bodies you are tipping. And while you amass your clippings of DeSalvo Hagen Crippen. Christy. Sorry. Take some advice from one killer to another. There's always someone worse than you. In your case, it's your mother. 1888
1: London was a far different place than we see today. It was the largest capital city in the world, but also the most deprived. Its population had swelled to around 6.9 million, and Victorian London was in full swing, In the more affluent parts, it was being transformed with modern concert halls, restaurants, and hotels being constructed. However, in the east end of London, it was a different story. Whitechapel in particular was considered one of the worst parts of London, and for its 250,000 inhabitants, life was tough. The area was overcrowded and littered with crime. The working, living, and sanitation conditions for those who lived there were unbearable, the poverty-stricken residents lived in the dimly-lit maze of roads and alleyways that were often smeared with human and animal excrement, and the smell drifting through the slums was putrid. Many of the residents were foreign immigrants with little or no money who worked long hours for just a few shillings. For the women living in these slums, many had no choice but to resort to prostitution to earn enough to eat. During this era, Around 1,200 prostitutes were working in Whitechapel alone. Most of them were alcoholics who frequented the dingy bars in the area in search of clients. These ladies at the night were considered the pits of a society, and if they were killed in the hands of a customer, it went virtually unreported. This was a side of London that others prefer to forget about, but that was all about to change until a person would become the subject of one of the most mysterious and infamous killings in British history, Jack the Ripper. On August the 31st, 1888, a carter named Charles Cross was walking to work along Bucks Row in Whitechapel. As he walked through the dimly lit alleyway, he noticed a bundle of dark cloth lying in a gateway. Thinking it was a discarded tarpaulin, he went over to inspect it. As Charles moved closer, he realized it was a woman. Unsure if she was dead or just drunk, he called over a fellow carter named Robert Paul, The two men approached the woman who was lying flat on her back with her skirt lifted above her waist. Charles felt her face, which was still warm to the touch, but her hands were icy cold and limp. Paul then put his hand on her chest and thought she was still breathing, so they pulled her skirt back over her knees and left her there for fear of being late for work. Due to the dark alley, neither men had realized that the woman's throat had been cut so savagely that her head had almost been decapitated. The next person to approach the body was beat officer PC John Neal. He examined the body with the aid of his lamp. Just picture the atmosphere as he noticed blood flowing from a wound on her throat. He later wrote in his statement that she was lying on her back with her clothes disarranged. I felt her arm, which was quite warm from the joints upwards. Her eyes were wide open, her bonnet was off and lying at her side. Neil alerted his fellow officer, PC John Thane, who alerted a doctor called Llewellyn, who arrived at the scene and pronounced life extinct. After examining the body at the scene, he suggested that she had been dead less than 30 minutes, meaning the killer must be within a small radius of the body during its discovery. News of the gruesome murder began to filter through the neighborhood, and a small crowd gathered around the body, before it was eventually taken to the mortuary in nearby Old Montague Street. Her post-mortem revealed horrific injuries, the likes that had never been seen before. Her throat had been cut from left to right, two distinct cuts being on the left side. The windpipe, gullet, and spinal cord were cut through. A bruise, presumably of a thumb, was on the right lower jaw, and also on her left cheek. The abdomen had been cut open from the center of the bottom of the ribs along the right side, under the pelvis to the left of the stomach. There the wound was jagged. The omentum was also cut in several places and two small stabs were made at the genitals. All injuries were inflicted with a strong, sharp knife by a left-handed individual. Fortunately for this lady, death would have almost been instantaneous. 43-year-old Mary Ann Nichols, as she would soon be identified as, was a mother of five. She was also known as Polly, who had been living at a nearby lodging house in Thrall Street. But how did she end up becoming the first victim of Britain's most notorious killer? It was established that just three months earlier, she was a resident of Lambeth Workhouse, and it was fellow workhouse resident, Mary Ann Monk, who identified the body. Nichols was a prostitute and alcoholic. Just hours before her body was found, she was spotted drinking in the frying pan pub, but left around 12.30 a.m. and returned to her lodging house at number 18 Thrall Street. But she didn't have the four pence needed to stay there, so was turned away. As she left, she shouted, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I'm wearing. As she walked off looking for clients, she was seen by her friend Emily Holland at around 2.30am, outside a grocer's shop at the junction of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road. Emily tried to persuade her to go back to her lodging house, but she refused and staggered off into the night to make more money. At some stage, within the next 75 minutes, Mary Nichols would meet her killer, who she likely went with to the dark gateway towards the top of Buck's Row. There he strangled her, rendering her unconscious before cutting her throat with a sharp-bladed knife. No one heard a thing, and then her killer vanished into the dark and crisp London night. As Nichols lay cold and mutilated on the mortuary slab, she had a final visit from her estranged husband, John Nichols, who was visibly distressed at the state of his wife. He reportedly whispered to her, I forgive you as you are for what you have been to me. Nichols' funeral was held on Thursday the 6th of September, 1888, and the mourners included her father and two of her children. She was buried in the City of London Cemetery, but this was only just the beginning. Two days after the funeral of Mary Ann Nichols, the unnamed killer struck again, coincidentally in the same street from where Mary had made her final journey. On the 8th of September, 1888, just before 6 a.m., John Davis, an elderly resident of 29 Hanbury Street, walked down the stairs and along a narrow passageway to open the back door. He was confronted by the mutilated body of a woman. He shouted to two men who were on their way to work and they followed him to where the body was lying. Her bloodied face was turned towards the house and her clothes had been pulled up above her waist exposing her red and white striped stockings. A handkerchief was tied around her throat and her hands were saturated in blood. The positioning of them indicated she had put up a fight. The three men were horrified by what they saw and ran off in different directions in search of a policeman. By the time the police arrived, a crowd had gathered around the body and police reinforcements were called in to disperse them. The divisional police surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips arrived and confirmed that the woman was beyond medical help. In his initial report, he noted that her face was swollen and turned to the right and her swollen tongue protruded between her front teeth. The body was terribly mutilated and her throat had been cut. The post-mortem revealed far more injuries. Throat cut from left to right, two distinct clean cuts on the left side of her spine and an attempt had been made to separate the bones of the neck. Various other mutilations of the body that were thought to have been caused after death. The protruding tongue was a strong indication of asphyxiation. The abdomen had been entirely laid open, the intestines had been lifted out of the body and placed on the shoulder of the lady, and the pelvic organs had been removed and were missing. This killer had a worryingly skilled hand. The victim was identified as Annie Chapman, a 45-year-old prostitute who had been living in lodgings at number 35 Dorset Street. Annie was born in Paddington, but was brought up in Windsor. In 1869, she married John Chapman, and the couple had three children. Both Annie and John were heavy drinkers, and eventually the pair separated. John had died on Christmas Day, 1886, so her allowance from him stopped. Annie fell into prostitution to bring in income. She also did crocket work and made and sold artificial flowers. In the days leading up to her death, Annie had been involved in an argument with fellow lodger Eliza Cooper over a bar of soap, and the argument had got physical. Some of the bruising to her face at the post-mortem was in fact attributed to this dispute. Before her murder, Annie would have been in considerable pain. Unbeknown to her, she was in the advanced stages of lung and brain disease of which there was no cure and she was dying. However, she was to meet a much more brutal end. Annie Chapman is the only Ripper victim who has a photograph of when she was alive. At 1 a.m. on the 30th of September, 1888, Louis Diemschut turned into Dutfield's yard just off Burner Street in his pony and cart. His pony shied to the left and refused to go any further. As Louis looked around to see what was there, he noticed a dark mound lying on the ground. He moved nearer and prodded at it with his whip, but got no response. So he lit a match to get a better look. But the wind was strong and it only stayed lit long enough for him to see it was a woman lying on the ground. At first he thought it was his wife and he rushed into the nearby club, where he found his wife safe and well but he told other drinkers in the club about the woman who he wasn't sure was drunk or dead. He returned to the woman, this time with a candle, and realized she was indeed dead. Her throat was cut. The police were alerted, and by the time they arrived, a small crowd had gathered around the body. At around 1.16 a.m., Dr. Blackwell arrived, and the woman was pronounced dead. Police then carried out a brief investigation of the residents and buildings in the surrounding area, and at 4.30 a.m., the body was moved to St. George's Mortuary in Cable Street. PC Albert Collins then washed the blood away from the yard. Dr. Blackwell noted that the woman was wearing a check silk scarf that was pulled tightly around her neck, and at the inquest, he stated that he had formed the opinion that the killer had first taken hold of the back of the scarf and pulled the victim backwards onto the ground, although he couldn't say for certain whether the woman's throat was cut while she was standing or after she had been pulled backwards. Once the killer had cut her throat, slicing through the windpipe, she would have been unable to cry out and would have bled to death within about a minute and a half. On this occasion, it seemed the killer left in a hurry and unlike the other victims, the body was not mutilated. The victim was later identified as Elizabeth Stride, a 45-year-old prostitute who was born in Sweden, but had moved to London in 1866 and married John Thomas Stride in 1869. The pair opened a coffee shop in Poplar, but by 1877, Stride found herself in the workhouse, and in 1881, her marriage to John broke down just before he passed away. On the day of her murder, Elizabeth spent the day cleaning rooms at her lodging house, for which she was paid sixpence, so she headed straight to the Queen's head pub. She later returned to the lodging house and borrowed a clothes brush from a fellow lodger, Charles Preston, before heading back out. Elizabeth was spotted several times over the next few hours with a man, and the final sighting, shortly before she was found dead, was made by Israel Swartz at 12.45am in front of Dutfield's Yard on Burner Street. He claimed he had witnessed her being thrown to the ground by an unknown man. If this account is to be believed, the man was almost certainly Jack the Ripper. At around the same time, Elizabeth Stride's body was discovered in Dutfield's Yard. Not far away, another prostitute named Catherine Eddowes was being released from Bishopsgate Police Station. She had been arrested the night before at around 8.30 p.m. for being drunk and disorderly. But by 12.15 a.m., she was awake and asking to leave. When asked on her release what her name and address was, she gave the name Mary Ann Kelly of 6 Fashion Street. She then walked off into the darkness. Less than an hour later, PC Watkins was walking the beat in the vicinity of Mitre Square. He had been patrolling the area all night, and didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. But as he turned into the square, at around 1.44am, he was faced with a horrific sight. Lying on the ground in front of him, in a pool of blood, was a woman. She was led on her back, with her clothes thrown up over her waist. He immediately called for assistance. Dr. George William Sequeira arrived at the scene, and examined the body, declaring life extinct. He later told the inquest that the place where the murder had occurred was probably the darkest part of Mitre Square. Although there had certainly been enough light for the murderer to execute the victim, he stated that the death would have been instantaneous once the murderer had cut the windpipe and the blood vessels. Although he was of the opinion that the murderer possessed no great anatomical skill, the coroner asked him if the assailant would be covered in blood, to which he replied, not necessarily, The post-mortem revealed the extent of the injuries. Her face had been horrifically mutilated and her throat had been severed to the bone. Similar to Annie Chapman, there were grotesque injuries to her stomach and the intestines had been placed outside the abdominal cavity. A left kidney was removed and was missing as well as part of her womb. At the mortuary, the victim was identified as Catherine Eddowes, a 46-year-old occasional prostitute who was born in Wolverhampton. She always claimed she was married to Thomas Conway, a former soldier with the 18th Royal Irish Regiment and had his initials tattooed on her arm, although no record of the marriage has ever been traced. The couple had two sons and a daughter, but in 1881 they separated and Edos took custody of her daughter and Conway their son. The whereabouts of their second son was unknown. Edos moved into a lodging house on the Flower and Dean Street and started a relationship with John Kelly The couple were still together at the time of her death. An interesting side note is that on the 28th of September, 1888, she spent the night in the casual ward of the Shoe Lane Workhouse, where it was reported by several newspapers she told the superintendent that she had come back to earn the reward being offered for the apprehension of the Whitechapel murderer, as she believed she knew who he was. The superintendent warned her to take care that he didn't murder her Oh, no fear of that, was her supposed reply. The day before her murder, she met up with Kelly for breakfast, after which the two parted company, and Catherine told Kelly that she was heading to Bermondsey to borrow money from her daughter. He never saw her alive again. In the aftermath of the audacious double murder, a clue was discovered for the first time. It's thought, after murdering Catherine Eddowes, the killer headed east, straight towards where the most police activity was. It's been suggested this was because he was a local man and he was heading to the safety of his home. It seems that he would have passed several police officers without either being noticed or arousing suspicion. After murdering Eddowes, the Ripper fled east, escaping down the dark cobblestone alleys. He had torn a piece of Catherine's apron, while stood in a dark doorway in Golston Street, where he wiped his bloody blade and disappeared into the night. A couple of hours after the slaughter, PC Alfred Long was patrolling his beat along Golston Street at 2.55 a.m. when he spotted the apron on the floor. When police found the apron not far from Catherine's body, written on the wall above it in chalk was the following. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Police feared this would cause a resurgence of the anti-Semitism and violence against the Jews, so the chalk was wiped away. We may never know if it was written by the hand of Jack the Ripper or if it was there before, but the police's decision to wipe it away before taking photographs is one of the biggest police blunders of the day and certainly added an extra layer of confusion for investigators for years to come. With the writing gone, The apron is the only real clue that Jack the Ripper ever left behind. And with today's modern forensic techniques, that probably would have been enough to catch him. But this was 1888, and the police were no nearer to finding the killer than they were when he started. The Ripper's final known victim was 25-year-old Mary Kelly, Unlike the other four, she was well-liked and had not been ravaged by the effects of alcohol and prostitution. She was born in Limerick Ireland, and moved to Wales as a child, where she claimed she married a collier who was killed in a pit explosion. After his death, Mary became a prostitute in Cardiff before moving to London to work in a high-class brothel in the West End and eventually finding herself in the East End. However, there are gaps in her life that little is known about, and most of what is known came from Joseph Barnett, a man she'd been living with until a couple of weeks before her death. Barnett was an unemployed Billingsgate fish porter who lived with Mary in a rented room in Miller's Court. The pair had a volatile relationship, and their lack of money, as well as Mary's return to prostitution, contributed to their breakup. They remained on good terms, and the night before her death, he had paid her a brief visit, but after he left at around 8 p.m., Kelly went out and was seen returning home at 11.45 p.m. by her neighbor, Mary Ann Cox. She was in the company of a stout, scruffy-faced man who was in his thirties with a carroty mustache and wearing a billycock hat. Kelly was drunk and she told Mrs. Cox that she was going to sing, a usual occurrence when she was intoxicated. Between midnight and 1 a.m. on the 9th of November, 1888, Several neighbors heard the singing, only a violet I plucked from my mother's grave. Kelly was seen again at about 2 a.m. by George Hutchinson on Commercial Street when she asked him for sixpence. After he declined, she walked off and started talking to a man. George followed the pair back to Miller's Court where Kelly led the man into a room. He later described the man as pale with a small mustache, dark hair, and bushy eyebrows. He was wearing a hat, a long dark coat, and spats over boots, and was carrying a small parcel. He also noted that he had a Jewish appearance. In the early hours of the morning, neighbors reported hearing a faint cry of murder coming from the direction of Mary Kelly's room. At 10.45 a.m., Thomas Bauer was sent around to 13 Miller's Court to collect Mary Kelly's overdue rent. After getting no reply, he looked through the window. The first thing he saw was what looked like two lumps of meat sitting on the bedside table. After reporting back to his employer, the police were alerted. Mary Kelly had been mutilated beyond recognition. Her body was slumped on her blood-soaked bed. Her whole abdominal cavity had been emptied out and the contents had been deliberately placed beneath her head and on the bedside table. Her breasts were cut off and her face had been hacked away with her nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears partially removed. Her heart had also been cut out and was missing. The cause of death was a severance of the carotid artery in the neck. This was by far the most brutal of all the murders. Mary Jane Kelly was laid to rest in the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Leightonstone. Joseph Barnett attended the funeral, but as reported in the Daily Telegraph, none of Mary's family could be traced to come to her funeral. Her grave is marked with a simple marker at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in London. In the early days of the police investigation, it was thought that the murders were gang-related. However, early on, this was discounted and a single perpetrator was thought to be the likely killer and someone who had knowledge of the area. With that in mind, Inspector Frederick George Aberline was drafted in to head the investigation as it was believed that his knowledge of the area would be key to solving this case. It was also hoped that Aberline's familiarity with the local criminal fraternity might persuade one of them to turn informer at a price, but they were wrong and many mistakes were made in the initial investigation. The press coverage of the murders was also a hindrance Unlike today, when the press can help when trying to track down a suspect, journalists in Victorian London were unscrupulous and would often try and bribe officers to get information. If that failed, they would just make stuff up, with some journalists even resulting to dressing up as women and wandering the streets of Whitechapel in the hope of being attacked by Jack the Ripper to gain a sensational headline. This type of reporting threw up many false leads leading Jack the Ripper to continue wandering the streets. Something that may have helped would have been a credible artist's impression. As it's thought, many witnesses may have seen Jack with his victims, but the illustrations released were just generic evil-looking men based on what they thought he would look like rather than how eyewitnesses described. During the investigation, police also received many letters, most of which were from pranksters. However, there were three letters that stood out the most. The Dear Boss letter, dated September the 25th, 1888. Though initially thought to be a hoax, it gained attention after Catherine Eddowes' murder on September the 30th. As the letter mentioned, clipping off his next victim's ears, Eddowes was found with one earlobe severed. The saucy Jack postcard was received on October the 1st, 1888, which mentioned the double event and had the same handwriting as the diabos letter. The From How letter was probably the most disturbing of all as the letter arrived in a small box that also contained half a human kidney. Catherine Edo's killer had removed one of her kidneys. Despite these promising developments, they ultimately led to nowhere and the case was never solved. The number of suspects had grown to over a 100, some of which were genuine contenders while others were just absurd. Many authors, former detectives, and amateur sleuths release new evidence every year, even to this day, claiming to finally have cracked the world's most famous murder mystery, each sounding pretty convincing. Some of the names in the mix include the Freemasons, Prince Albert Edward Victor, and even Dr. Bernardo, but the evidence against these is flimsy and it's unlikely that it's any of them. Out of the many suspects, there were six that have remained in the frame for many years. Montague Druitt is considered by many to be the number one suspect in the Jack the Ripper case and for that reason, he's included in our list. Despite there being very little evidence with which to implicate his guilt, Druitt was an Oxford educated man and after graduating in 1881, began teaching at the boarding school in Blackheath, London. He later went on to qualify as a barrister. But after the death of both his parents in a short space of time, followed by his dismissal from Blackheath School, reportedly for his homosexual tendencies, Druitt went missing, and on Monday, December the 31st, 1888, his body was found floating in the River Thames. It's thought that he had been in the river for at least three weeks, and the loss of his job, parents, and his deteriorating mind contributed to him taking his life. So how did he become a ripper suspect? Well, apart from the fact he fitted the description of a smartly dressed man in his early 30s with a mustache, the only thing that links him to the murders is the cryptic quote made by Sir Malvin Leslie McNaughton in his famous memoranda. This is what he wrote about Druitt. I have always held strong opinions regarding him, and the more I think the matter over, the stronger do these opinions become. The truth, however, will never be known, and did indeed at one time lie at the bottom of the Thames, if my conjectures be correct. Mr. M.J. Druitt, a doctor of about 41 years of age and of fairly good family who disappeared at the time of the Millers Court murder, and whose body was floating around in the Thames on the 31st of December, i.e. seven weeks after the said murder. The body was said to have been in the water for a month or more. On it was found a season ticket between Blackheath and London. From private information, I have little doubt that his own family suspected this man of being the Whitechapel murderer. It was alleged that he was sexually insane. All that can be concluded from this is that McNaughton knew more than he was willing to reveal. After all, even though he wasn't on the police force during the Ripper killings, he was actively involved in the investigation between 1889 and 1891, and did have links to the Jewett family through a couple of his high-ranking friends. He later claimed that he destroyed information he had on Jewett so as not to cause an uproar. As you may have noticed from the quote, There are also some inconsistencies in what McNaughton wrote, most obviously his age and occupation. Druitt was 31, not 41, and a barrister, not a doctor. At 11.10, on the morning of Monday, the 27th of April, 1896, Carl Feigenbaum was executed by electric chair in New York. He was pronounced dead at exactly 11.18. This was a fitting end to a man who had brutally knifed to death a woman in front of her 16-year-old son. However, the name Karl Feigenbaum was to stay in the spotlight after his lawyer, William Sanford Lawton, made this statement almost immediately after the execution. I believe that Carl Feigenbaum, who you have just seen put to death in the electric chair, can easily be connected with the Jack the Ripper murders in Whitechapel, London. I will stake my professional reputation that if the police trace this man's movements carefully for the last few years, their investigation will lead them to London and to Whitechapel. Now, this is entirely plausible. The man was a self-confessed psychopath who admitted to his lawyer that he had an uncontrollable urge to kill and mutilate every woman who falls in his way. He was also a German merchant seaman who traveled extensively, so could have been in London at the time of the murders. He is also linked to many other unsolved murders around the same time, although was only ever convicted of the one. In Trevor Marriott's book, Jack the Ripper, the 21st Century Investigation, the theory that Carl is the Ripper is covered in great detail and puts up a convincing argument, but as with the complexity of this case, so do many of the other suspects. In recent years, many Ripperologists have started believing that Mary Jane Kelly had a second husband, and it was him that was behind all the Jack the Ripper killings in London. His name was Francis Craig, an unsuccessful journalist who married Elizabeth Weston Davis on the 24th of December, 1884. However, just a few months into the marriage, Craig discovered that his new wife was engaging in prostitution After she was caught entertaining a young man near their marital home in King Cross, he reluctantly divorced her in 1886. After being caught out, Elizabeth left Craig and went into hiding in the East End under the pseudonym Mary Jane Kelly. But Craig was obsessed and stalked her until he discovered she was living in Whitechapel, where he took lodgings at 306 Mile End Road. He had truly loved his wife, but after witnessing her lifestyle, his love turned to disgust and hatred and he plotted to murder her. To disguise his involvement, he opted to kill other prostitutes in the area as well before finally butchering his intended victim. Now this version of Mary Jane Kelly's life could be true as out of all the Ripper victims, the least is known about her and the only scant detail that was recorded were provided by Joseph Barnett, the man she was living with until a couple of weeks before her death and a man she had known less than a year. A few months after the murder of his ex-wife, Craig left Whitechapel and returned to West London, where he worked as editor of the Indicator and West London News, a job he held until 1896. But in 1903, while living in lodgings at Carthy Road, Hammersmith, Craig cut his throat with a razor, leaving his landlady a note which read, "'I have suffered a deal of pain and agony.' For over a 100 years after his death, he was largely forgotten until 2015 when Dr. Wyne Weston Davis released his book titled The Real Mary Kelly. Dr. Weston Davis claimed to be Mary Kelly's great nephew and released the connection when new documents were discovered in 2011, which included a petition for divorce and its supporting sworn affidavit. In the book, the missing parts of Kelly's life were filled in, proving his theory. He even plans to have Mary Keddy's body exhumed so DNA analysis can be performed to determine once and for all the true identity of the Ripper's final victim and prove Craig's motive for the murders. This suspect, like Francis Craig, is one of the more recent people to be linked to the Ripper murders. You might recognize his name from the Mary Ann Nichols murder, as he was one of the men who found her body in Bucks Row. At the inquest into Nicholls' death, he gave his name as Charles Cross, but this was a lie. His real name was Charles Leachmere. Cross was the name of the policeman that his mother had married after his father died. Recent analysis by Dr. Gareth Norris of Aberystwyth University has revealed that Cross was in proximity to all the murder victims. His route to work took him past Hanbury Street where Annie Chapman's body was discovered, Mitre Square, the site of Catherine Eddowes' demise, and Dorset Street, which runs past Miller's Court, where Mary Jane Kelly's room was. Burner Street, where Elizabeth Stride's body was found, was near his mother's house, who he visited regularly. At the time of the murders, he was a 39-year-old driver for Pickford Meats, and it's always been suggested that as he was a meat-delivery man, it would not have been unusual for him to have blood-stained clothes, providing the perfect excuse for any blood splatters. It seems he was also a compulsive liar, with quite a few discrepancies in the statements he gave after the Nichols murder. It seems these inconsistencies put Leachmere in the frame in recent years, as we have always been led to believe Charles Cross found the body of Mary Nichols and alerted Robert Paul, the other man on the scene. However, what investigators are saying now is that Paul actually arrived on the scene as Cross was carrying out the attack and Cross remained with the body rather than running, claiming he had just found her. The two statements that the men gave could indicate this as the two men's accounts do differ slightly, but is that enough to decisively say that Leachmere was the killer? Probably not, although those that believe he is put up a convincing argument and theory. If you've ever read the Victorian diary, supposedly written by a wealthy cotton merchant from Liverpool called James Maybrick, you would be convinced that he was Jack the Ripper. It's full of detailed confessions and descriptions that only the killer would know. And at the end, it's signed off with this. I give my name that all know of me, so history do tell. What love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. But there was just one problem After it was released, Ripper experts who subjected it to careful analysis began to question its authenticity. A long list of people came forward to say it was a sophisticated forgery and a money-making scheme dreamt up by Mike Barrett, the man who claims he obtained the diary from a family friend. However, 25 years after the release of the diaries, another book has been released by Robert Smith, who claims the diary is legitimate after all. According to his new evidence, the book was found in 1992 by three electricians working at Battlecree's house in Liverpool, James Maybrick's former home. And indeed, documents show the electricians were at Maybrick's old house the same day. Barrett phoned up a London literary agent to say, "I've got Jack the Ripper's diary." It seems the three electricians and Barrett all knew each other and were also known to go to the pub together. Barrett was known to be a colourful character who made claims about being an author and they thought he would be the perfect person to help them find a publisher and sell it. It also refutes claims that Barrett produced the book himself as his literary achievements were limited and he was certainly not literate enough to compose such a sophisticated and credible forgery. So does that mean that the diary was actually written by James Maybrick? We may never know. One of the most well-known suspects in the Jack the Ripper case is Queen Victoria's grandson, Prince Albert Victor, also known as Eddie. He had a reputation for being a ladies' man and it's claimed many of his scandalous mis were covered up by the palace. However, at the time, he was still a popular member of the royal family and was second in line to the throne and had he lived, would have eventually been crowned the King of England. To give you an idea of how high up he was in the royal family, He has the equivalent status that Prince William does today, so to link him to the Jack the Ripper murders is controversial and improbable. But because he is the highest profile of all the Ripper suspects, we have to mention him if only to set the record straight. During the time the Ripper murders, there was no evidence of Eddie ever being linked to the crimes. It wasn't until years later in 1962 that he was first mentioned as a suspect in a book written by Philippe Julien This started a stream of theories that included bizarre claims that Eddie was suffering from syphilis and that the infection drove him insane and compelled him to commit the frenzied attacks. Others focused on him being homosexual and having a relationship with his Cambridge tutor, James K. Stephen, who then went on to commit the murders after their liaison with Eddie ended, apparently out of a twisted desire for revenge. But perhaps the most popular theory came from a man called Joseph Sickert, He claimed that Eddie had secretly married a poor Catholic girl named Alice Mary Crook, who soon fell pregnant and gave birth to a child called Alice. But when Queen Victoria discovered her grandson's indiscretion, she demanded that the situation be dealt with, so she instructed her prime minister, Lord Salisbury, to sort it out. He enlisted the help of royal physician, Sir William Gull. Eddie and Alice were split and Gull performed experiments on Alice, devised to erase her memory and drive her insane. Their child, however, escaped with her nanny, Mary Kelly, who left her with nuns before moving to Whitechapel, where she started telling her story to prostitutes, Nichols, Stride, and Chapman, and together they decided to blackmail the government. In order to silence the women, Gull arranged for the women to be murdered. Sickert claimed that the murders of Catherine Eddowes was a case of mistaken identity as she often went by the name of Mary Kelly. As for Alice, while she grew up and married a painter called Walter Sickert and the pair had a child called Joseph Sickert. Despite this theory being almost completely debunked, it's still used as the basis for many movies, novels and TV series and sticks in the mind of many who believe it to be true. However, there is no evidence to substantiate any of these claims In fact, Eddie was not even in the country at the time of two of the murders. Eddie died at the age of 28 from influenza just weeks before he was due to marry. The truth is that however many suspects there are and the theories behind them, it's unlikely we will ever find out who Jack the Ripper really was, but that does not diminish the worldwide interest in the mystery. At the time, the police seemed clueless, the press attention and macabre headlines hindered the investigation and caused mass hysteria in the area. And after four years of drawing a blank, the Metropolitan Police officially closed the case. But over 130 years later, to the public, the case is still very much open and continues to inspire a never-ending stream of books, films, and television programs all reacting in precise detail the gruesome murders on grim streets of Victorian London. It's easy to forget these crimes really happened, and there were real victims who lost their lives in the most grotesque way. One thing is for sure, thankfully the murders will most likely never be replicated. With today's advanced investigation techniques and the clues he left behind, the killer would have been caught after his first murder, and the name, Jack the Ripper, would not be one of the most notorious names in serial killer history.